Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. There has been a lot of discussion that has led up to a story yesterday uh, that was published by the New York Times Magazine that has garnered a lot of attention about the disrepair of the New York City subway system and uh, potential catastrophe that could ensue if these uh, problems are not fixed. Here to speak with us about that is somebody who has intimate knowledge with the MTA and the New York City subway uh, system, Richard Ravitch, who is the chairman and partner of Ravitch Rice and Co. Also, though, uh, former lieutenant governor of New York State and head of the Metropolitan Transportation Authority. Uh, Thank you so much for coming in on this incredibly snowy day. I want to start with this story uh, in The New York Times magazine that put the bill at $111 billion conservatively that would be needed to fix the New York City subway system. Did you think that the tone of it was accurate, that we're kind of at a do or die point for the entire subway system? Well, there is no instant solution. What has been lacking because of the board's failure to fulfill their responsibilities properly, honorably, uh, has been there is no analysis of what it would take to restore the system to a state of good repair. The number that the author of that article came up with was a composite of what other people said. But what you need is an analysis of what the replacement cost and useful life of every component part of the subway system is. Then you decide from that how much is necessary. Then you prioritize, and then you look at new stations, new new challenges, and you make policy choices. But you can't start when you don't have the fundamental knowledge. And the board has failed to fulfill its responsibility in a very serious manner. They have acted negligently and irresponsibly. So uh, how can this be fixed? The legislature of the state of New York it has a responsibility to look into this They are the authors of laws. They passed the law uh, in 2009, making it abundantly clear that the fiduciary responsibility of the boards of authorities like the MTA is to the purposes of the authority. And the legislature has the power to investigate, to hold hearings, to bring the public's attention, uh, to demand that the People who hold these appointments fulfill their responsibilities as the law intended that they be fulfilled. Mr. Ravitch, uh, I understand that back in 1979, cast your mind back, you came up with such a plan. You took a detailed look at the entire system and you put together a playlist for what needed to happen. You even had to wear a bulletproof vest, I think, at one point. it didn't work out the way you thought it was. You had a call of a gentleman named David Rockefeller. I'm wondering if you could just explain. No, didn't you have to call him and take him through I the did. subway system at 5 a.m. in the morning? I did because 
there were upstate Republicans who were reluctant to approve all the revenue uh, measures that I had recommended to the legislature to provide a stream of revenue that we would use to support the borrowing, the capital borrowing that we needed to fix the subway system. So I, I needed the support of the business community in New York to get the Republican support. But we had the support of the governor, the active support of the governor, the active support of the New York State Assembly, the active support of of the mayor of the city of New York, um, and... and uh, the unions and the business community, and and they got behind this, and they authorized or enacted legislation that provided hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue, which we used to support the indebtedness that enabled me to buy three billion dollars of subway cars. Well, but I, I want to sort of broaden out here because you're underscoring fundamental flaws in the management of the subway system at a time when more broadly we're talking about infrastructure spending and how much we can invest. Uh, just real quick, can we even make these infrastructure investments without a wholesale change in the management? Uh, <clears throat> I obviously am no longer familiar with the technicians who operate at the MTA. But I'd have to tell you, the professional engineers who I've known over the years are very eminently qualified. The, the, the problem isn't the professional technical management. People know how to fix this. People know how to buy subway cars. People know how to change the signal system to uh, triple the throughput of so we don't have as many people waiting in stations for two or three trains because of overcrowding. Everybody knows how to do it. That's not what's missing. What's missing is money. And money requires paying for the person who's going to pay it. And and therefore, the question is, in the best sense of the word in a democracy, a political question. How do you allocate the burden? We are speaking with Richard Ravitch. He is the former chairman of the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, former lieutenant governor of the state of New York, the author of the book So Much to Do, A Full Life of Business, Politics, and Confronting Fiscal Crises. One crisis that we've been following is Puerto Rico, and Mr. Ravitch has been looking at the situation in the devastated Commonwealth. And uh, Mr. Ravitch, maybe you could offer us some thoughts about the current conditions and what if you were given a clean slate, if you were given a whiteboard, what would you suggest be one of the first steps uh, that is taken in order to right the ship at, uh, in Puerto well, first Rico? First of all, the three and a half million people, and it's unfortunately, it's probably closer to three today, uh, are United States citizens. And they have not been treated the same way that the United States citizens in Houston, Texas, or New Orleans were treated after devastating hurricanes. Uh, our distinguished president threw paper towels at them, uh, but has failed to make any serious effort to get an amount of money to restore the power, to restore the physical infrastructure. And as a consequence, people are leaving the island. There is no incentive for people to invest. Um, the healthcare system is in jeopardy. Uh, there is still a substantial percentage of the population that has to boil the water uh, to um, uh, before they drink it. Um, <clears throat> and I talked to a friend of mine who was the chairman of one of the largest banks 
in Puerto Rico who told me he still doesn't have power in his home. And it's not because he's not rich and can't afford it. Well, you you advise the government, correct? I advise the government and the U.S. Treasury Department. So you're advising uh, the Puerto Rico I did. government? And, no and, longer. No longer. Uh, one major issue that was facing the government is the pension obligations. And this has been uh, one of the most onerous issues, and apart from the $70 billion of debt. Um, I'm wondering... What lessons we can draw from that, you know, what what sort of the route out is and sort of extrapolate out to the pension issues that we're seeing across the U.S. right now. Uh, how how bleak of a situation is this with obligations that way outstrip uh, potential income and current current reserves? These were not obligations incurred in bad faith. They were incurred without a realistic expectation and understanding of how they would be ultimately met. So that the underfunding of the pension system in Puerto Rico, where it's particularly egregious, they've essentially run out of the principal amount of the pension funds and are going to have to pay whatever benefits they wish to pay uh, out of current revenue, which is, of course, diminishing, um, Elsewhere in the United States, uh, from Chicago to New Jersey to Kentucky to California, I could give you a list, Colorado, there's no capacity to meet their pension obligations. There are a lot of very serious efforts that intellectually there are four or five major foundations that are funding studies on this subject. And you have a very serious moral and political question. If you say you want to reduce the pension benefits for somebody who worked for government for 20 years, why is that morally acceptable? But you don't want to cut the interest that you're paying to somebody who lent you money they shouldn't have lent you because you were insolvent when you borrowed it. And why why people in New York City... Billions of dollars, which is what led to the New York City fiscal crisis in 75. All these hedge funds that lent Puerto Rico that bought hundreds of, or billions and billions of dollars of the debt when they were broke, when they didn't even have audited financial statements. They gambled. Why is their entitlement to interest morally superior to the payment of a pension to a former public servant? Uh, unfortunately, we're going to have to, to leave it there. Richard Ravitch, uh, who is the uh, author of So Much to Do, uh, as well as former lieutenant governor of New York and head of the MTA. All right, we want to learn about Tesla, and we have Liam Denning, our Bloomberg Gadfly columnist, to tell us about the Model 3. Liam, uh, is Tesla really going to be able to meet their targets when it comes to that 5,000-unit mark, and how much is it going to cost for them to produce those cars? Well, the, the question is what, you know, you need to take a step back and say what actually is a target here, because... That 5,000 number or and other numbers have been thrown around, like the old 10,000 a week rate that was spoken of. Um, if a target moves over time enough, does it is it really still a target? 
I mean, it's it, it's fairly certain that Tesla will get to producing 5,000 Model 3s a week at some point. Um, but I'm not sure we can even call it a target at this point because it has been moved around so much. We just have to call it an expectation. Um, and that was kind of the point of the, the column that I published today. Um, because the thing is, if you're really relying on these targets, um, then it, it's kind of hard to say that you're actually investing on the strength of those. What you're right. really investing on is just a general belief that Tesla will get to profitability and volume production at some point, but you're not really, you're sort of trusting them, but you're not really following up with the with the verifying bit. In other words, this is pure faith and nothing based in particular numbers. I mean, I guess that uh, sort of edifying that point is Tesla shares today. They're down a little bit less than 1%. You would expect right. a much bigger decline with yet another disappointment uh, from their actual production when this has been one of the key concerns. Also, they're still they're still burning through a billion dollars of cash every quarter and are probably going to have to raise more money, No. Uh, you would expect so. I mean, if you if you think back to when they reported third quarter results, which was early November. Now, those results were, um, you know, they missed targets across the board there, a missed forecast across the board. Um, they cut the, the outlook for production of the Model 3, which is kind of all that anyone really cares about at this point. Um, and the stock did actually fall quite sharply after that, it went back below 300 bucks a share. But it since came back, I mean, partly because, um, you know, we had the launch of the, um, well, I wouldn't call it a launch, but we, we had the, the, the sort of demo of, of the Tesla uh, electric semi-trucks since then, and the stock went up a bit on that. And it's actually higher now than it was in the immediate aftermath of those results. Um, but if you look forward to this year, I mean, what you have a combination of here is Tesla has invested already a lot of money into building this production line, which isn't working as planned. They haven't reached, um, you know, smooth mass production of the car yet, and they've had to scale back um, the, the pace of, of growth in that. And if you think about that, what that means is you've invested all the money in this production line, but you're still waiting to really produce the cars that are going to generate the revenue to pay back on that investment. And as we look forward to the rest of the year, you know, it does seem likely that unless something drastic changes in the pace at which Tesla can produce these cars, um, they are probably going to have to tap the markets for more financing this year. Uh, whether Now, whether that comes in the form of equity or another bond or a convertible or something else, um, that is looking ever more likely. Of course, the flip side of that is, as long as uh, the stock doesn't react badly to this, you know, consistent missing of targets, then Tesla does appear to have a, a ready way of, uh, of raising that money. Liam Denning, thank you so much for joining us. Liam Denning, energy, mining and commodities columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly. Research? No, forget about it. Meeting chief executive officers? A waste of time for this fund manager. 
and they've actually done pretty well. Here to help us understand their strategy is Kurt Kara. He is the chief investment strategist for My Invest. They're based in Copenhagen, Denmark, and he joins us on the phone. Kurt, thank you very much for being with us. Just describe for people your strategy and how you came to put this all together. All right. Well, thank you for uh, letting me uh, call in. Uh, very briefly, we are very uh, <clears throat> focused on on being uh, rational when we invest. So we try to be as stringent and rational out of a sort of a moral imperative when we invest. So one of the things that we find is very important is to be driven by data and rationality and an economic understanding of the businesses we invest in. So what we do is basically we look for if you want to catch uh, some sort of if you want to if you want to hunt a dinosaur you look for dino, dinosaur footprints and then you ask yourself if this is a dinosaur and then you then you go for the hunting itself so uh, so that's basically what we do how many stocks do you invest in at any given time in other words uh, do you have to kind of concentrate your bets with this type of strategy since it requires uh, a profound understanding of the businesses yeah, well, it's a good question because I think one of the uh, conventional uh, cardinal points of investment is that you should diversify a lot. I, I think that there's a big difference between diversification and diversification. If we diversify too much, we actually diversify. We believe that uh, 25 to 35 names is adequate. Uh, anything above 35 names, and we will start to become uh, index hoggers. And that's really not what we want to be. We we want to be active managers, picking uh, the best businesses we can find at, at attractive prices. And uh, I, I honestly believe that if you look at, for instance, the financial crisis in, in, in 08, uh, very diversified portfolios didn't do much better than less diversified portfolios. So, so in theory, it may work, but in reality, I don't think diversification uh, works once you're above 35, 40 names. Kurt, where do you get the confidence to maintain this level of discipline? Oh, well, yeah, well, first of all, I have some good colleagues and they'll kick me <laughs> if, if I don't, uh, if I'm not con uh, disciplined. But my confidence in my di and the discipline comes from, I would say, First of all, having this system we have that, that sort of looks at the marketplace, looks at all the stocks in the marketplace and uh, gives us ideas and scores every single stock out there. And that is a very good neutral objective view on the marketplace. And then we have our subjective views and our subjective understanding of the businesses we invest in. The discipline, however, is, is obviously something which has to be learned over the years, and I, I, I believe we have done so. Uh, there is a big difference between basically eating the menu and eating the menu card. And a lot of investors perhaps eat the card more than the menu. Uh, so it's easy to say you're a value investor. It's easy to say we're active investors and we, we manage risk. But actually doing it requires discipline. And this is something we've been working on over the years. And we still work on it. Maybe just use one uh, investment idea, General Motors, as an example. Because, you know, when you, when you hear about your strategy, you think, oh, there's some like super secret company that they're going to invest in. And, and it turns out it may just be that you find a company that everybody knows about, but the way you perceive the company and the confidence you have in the decision is different. Yeah, well, I guess uh, GM is a great example. I mean, we bought GM in September last year. Uh, 
I believe the market value was roughly around $50 billion, and they, the, the enterprise value was $40 billion, and GM generates $10 billion in earnings and, and $10 billion in free cash flow. Uh, it has a female CEO, which is quite rare, so she's obviously doing a great job in a, in a sector which is dominated by males. Uh, so uh, all the things, when you look at it, looked okay, because, you know, they have autonomous driving. They have uh, the Chevrolet Bolt, the Chevrolet Bolt. They have the Cadillac, which is the only limo priced as a as a Mercedes, basically. Uh, they have the Camaro and, you know, you name it. They have, they have 9% of lift, as far as I, I understand. So they have all these areas. And when you look at GM, it's not the old uh, dust-covered company uh, that some people may believe it is. It is actually a, a, a company which is uh, up-to-date technologically speaking, and the price tag was very, very attractive. So you could say, you know, uh, we don't necessarily buy gold just because it's gold. We want to buy gold when it's priced as silver. Uh, GM is perhaps silver priced as bronze or actually more like junk metal, whereas some of the more golden stocks in the stock market right now, they're priced as diamonds, and, and they're not diamonds. So for us, it's all about buying the undervalued stuff. And, it's and, really, and Mary, really just wanted to break to in because I want Lisa yeah. to come in too, sure. but just quickly, uh, give you 10 seconds. Mary Barra, as the chairman yeah. and chief executive, that's important to you. Explain. Well, very briefly, I mean, uh, it's important because if you can make it as a CEO with your uh, uh, biometric measures against you and your, your biological measures against you in the sense that we, we know that there's an over-representation in boardrooms and amongst the CEOs uh, when we look at, for instance, uh, Caucasian males. Uh, tall, slim uh, Caucasian males are overrepresented. So if you have a CEO which, is, which doesn't have these features, it must be because they're doing some sort of you know, good stuff as a CEO. They have to be outperforming significantly since they can, they can get to that position. And I think she's doing a great job. And uh, I don't have to meet her. I mean, we don't have to meet the CEO. We, we look at the results they generate. Yeah. Uh, if, and that's more important for us. Kurt Kara, thank you so much for joining us. Kurt Kara, Chief Investment Strategist at My Invest, uh, which runs the My Invest Value at Care Fund, which has returned 16% on average each year in the past five years, better than 95% of its peers. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.